0: Welcome to Ramble
1: City. I suppose so. I I went through quite a few bands in Liverpool before I got there. I read somewhere, sorry to interrupt, I read somewhere that
0: between 1958 and 63 there was something like 500 different bands that would form and reform. Oh god,
1: try a thousand.
0: The size of Liverpool was what? It wasn't that big. It was like three hundred square kilometres, wasn't it?
1: Like it was about eight hundred thousand people, I think, 800,000 wow. to nine hundred thousand people. Um, but that's a lot of bands. It exploded. Yeah, yeah, it really did explode.
0: Hello and welcome. To Season 1 of Ramble City. I will be your host, Bradley McCaw. Thank you for stopping by. Thank you for pushing play on your little device, wherever you're listening to this from. This is very exciting. The inaugural episode, the first episode. We did it! To be honest, I've been hoarding episodes and conversations with very clever and interesting people as I travelled around the world over the past... Well, God, it's about two or three years now. So imagine my excitement to finally be bringing you this very first episode. And we're actually beginning today with the very first conversation that took place way, 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 way back when I first started this whole project. So I'm so excited that you're here. And look, without further ado, let's talk about our first guest for today, Mr. Jose McLaughlin. Now, Jose McLaughlin is a multi-instrumentalist, a composer. He's a former member of the world-famous pop group Jerry and the Pacemakers. You may have heard of them, yeah? I mean, he's worked with the Doobie Brothers, Chuck Berry, Peter Allen, James Morrison, Bo Diddley, and like so, so many more. Now, we talked together from a university in Brisbane, and, you know, he told me stories about many, many moments from an incredible career. We started with him playing piano in the family home, a beautiful story about his mum and growing up, and then him travelling the world as a recording artist and a pop star, in inverted commas, and, I mean... The big thing for me was him being a part of that Mersey beat scene in the 1960s, you know, the British invasion that that gave us acts like The Strangers and The Beatles. Now, through this whole conversation, I couldn't help but think about there's this Eric Clapton album called Journeyman and uh, I had no idea what a journeyman was and I did some research and a journeyman turned out to be this idea of someone that makes a life in a trade uh, pretty much like music or a trade like being a sportsperson person. They're never the, the most famous, they're never the most hugely successful, but they travel town to town, check to check. And so this idea of a journeyman was, was in my mind when Jose and I were talking. So we, we get into that a little bit too about, you know, does a journeyman exist or, or how does he see a journeyman or what is a journeyman, probably to be, to be clearer. So I can't wait for you to hear this episode. We're going to kick off with me asking Jose about his hometown and what it was like growing up in Liverpool before the Beatles. Welcome to Ramble City.
1: Yeah, well, I suppose when I was young, I didn't really know anything else other than the environment that I was growing up in. So it wouldn't have been until I left Liverpool and started seeing other parts of the world that I was able to kind of differentiate between what I'd grown up in and what the rest of the world was like, you know, get a comparison. It was the area of Liverpool that I grew up in was called Everton, uh, which they've now completely demolished and destroyed. The memories that come back are the community, the sense of humor, uh, the camaraderie...
0: So it wasn't a bleak, a bleak place to live particularly, it was... It, oh, was...
1: in hindsight it was. Yeah. In hindsight it would be. It was exactly how you'd imagine a northern town to be. It was grimy, it was cold, um, I don't remember a lot of sunshine when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, in actual fact, when I think back to the early days in Liverpool, in my thoughts, I see it in black and white. Oh, wow. And not colour. That's interesting. Yeah, and that's what it seemed like, you know. And when did you find music? Was it in at home? Yes, it was at home. My mother was a really good piano player. Uh, my mother, her name was Teresa. And she was um, she could play in the style of Fats Waller or Art Tatum, or classical music. In actual fact, her brother and her sisters were all great piano players. Wow. And I remember from virtually the time I was born, my mum always playing the piano and me being absolutely fascinated by it. I I was a listener, you know? Yeah.
0: Did it get to a point where you went, oh, no, that's what I want to do? Was it when you were still young or did that take some time before you discovered?
1: No, it was actually, uh, unfortunately, uh, my mother died when I was six. In the old days, uh, because the weather was so bad, they used to have washing lines actually inside the house in the kitchen. Yeah, right. And my mum had filled the washing line up with clothes and pulled it off and something must have given way. And the whole lot came down and hit her on the head. And they think that's what possibly caused a Mm. tumour. I don't think it was cancerous. I think it was benign. Yeah. And she went into hospital to have it removed and they stuffed up the operation and she died. I was six. And apart from losing my mum, the most noticeable thing in my life was the fact that there was no piano music anymore. There was no music anymore. There was no piano. I mean, the instrument was still there, but the music wasn't. So, is that when you? So, didn't... I decided that I, yeah, continue my mum's. Yeah. Well, wow, that's a really beautiful story. <laughs> I'm really. I'm getting a bit emotional about it. Actually.
0: Yeah. I can just see the. The little, you know, the little boy getting up and playing that um, piano. And
1: I just, um, I, I just started picking out notes on the piano until I could form things and then I'd hear things on the radio and try and play it on the piano. And without realising what I was doing, I was starting to build my ear and my sense of relative pitch, you know. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember the first song
1: you played? Oh, it was uh, I, I don't. I don't know if it has a name. It's just called A Vamp. Yeah. yeah, that one, yeah, that one. Um, my dad showed me how to play that, actually, because he could play a bit of guitar. And I just kept going, so I'd go, like, when I'd come home from school at the end of the day where other kids would go out and play football in the streets, I'd go to the piano and sit there and try and pick, pick things out all the time until I got... Eventually, better and better and better I said at, at doing it, yeah. it, it.
0: it amazes me because the when I looked back, um, just about that the time of music through the nineteen fifties and into the nineteen sixties, and I guess the the end of the forties that we're talking about now, too, That you know Liverpool was a place that was around for the, for the port. Yeah, like as in the harbour, not the the drink particularly. Yeah, and uh, it turned into this this place that was known for this this fashion and this sound. Yeah. Do you remember a time where it started, you noticed changes, or you noticed, or was it just all of a sudden? I mean, because you ended up right in the thick of it and all these different bands around that time. Oh, ev- like,
1: eventually, yeah, but yeah. It, of course, it was a steady progression. Of it, course, you know, which you don't really realize at the time. No, you don't realize that at the time. And I mean, around about this time, when I was starting to pick out tunes on the piano, um, L- Liverpool was a huge, um it was a huge seafaring it was the main port uh, that dealt with trade with the United States where the docks were weren't in actual fact very far from where I lived so it would be possible to walk down the hill from where I lived in Everton and end up on the dock what we call the dock road where all the uh, factories would be and the ships and the, and the River Mersey was right there. So it's kind of like it was in your part of your being. It was in your lungs, you know, it was. Yeah. Yeah. Where we lived, we had, um, it was a, a house that was built over what used to be an old shop. And my dad at the time, he, after the war, after he got out of the Navy, he decided he was going to convert this shop into a cafe, which he did. Uh, became quite a focal point in the local area, so a lot of people used to come to the cafe. And he loved music, and he loved uh, particularly um, blues, uh, American blues, and jazz, and stuff like that. So once people started coming into his cafe, some of the people that came in were Merchant seamen who used to do this trip between Liverpool and the United States. And what he'd get them to do while they were over in the States was get records for him that you couldn't get in England and they'd bring them back. He'd play them and, of course, I'd hear them, you know? So I was hearing lots of stuff before Liverpool became this Moosey Beat Centre. Because you weren't just going on to Spotify? At the time and no, just no, streaming it? No, I wasn't. No, yeah, no, right. I wasn't
0: googling it or anything. how yeah,
1: no. <laughs> <laughs> times have changed.
0: <laughs> so you're there, the music's playing in your dad's cafe. Yeah. And one of the things I, I've been thinking about, listening back to a lot of the music, just of, of the, the Mercy Sound and all that, is that the differences between the the grimy sort of dirty gut bucket blues of that time that turned into this kind of standing up straight, kind of it's still jovial and it's still yeah you know but it's certainly not as down home. D- no, it isn't. Is no, it? no. It's a bit more theatrical in a sense. Was there something about the people that of the personality you think that
1: that lent itself to that in a way, like possibly? Yeah, I, th- there was uh, the music. By the time it got to the um, mid to late 50s in Liverpool, um, there was a lot of jazz. There was a lot of people like jazz, and in actual fact, the Cavern Club was originally a jazz club. But that seemed to be too uh, way out of people's reach uh, as regards being able to part- participate in that. And it wasn't until people like um, Lonnie Donegan started coming out with a, a type of music that was called skiffle, which was kind of like a very happy-go-lucky kind of almost country and western trad jazz kind of mix, you know? <laughs> that people felt that, oh, well, I could do that because all you need to do is go out and buy a very cheap guitar, get your mother's washboard, <laughs> so you get a, a tea chest with a broom handle on it and a piece of string tied tightly, <laughs> And you can make all these sounds, you know, which is, in actual fact, what the uh, Quarry Bank, uh, the Quarrymen were, which was uh, John Lennon's first group, they were a skiffle group. There was lots of these skiffle groups around, which were later to develop into the groups that we knew uh, from the Merseybeat scene. The thing about Liverpool is it's called the capital of comedy. Everybody's a comedian. Everybody is. So it doesn't matter what you do there; it's injected with some sense of humour and some sense of self-deprecation. Yeah, right. You know, yeah, and I think, and also Liverpool was a really poor place. It was totally avoided by people down south. London, Liverpool, never heard of it. You know, right. It was kind of one of those places, even though it was important uh, financially as regards um, the marine stuff it was totally disregarded as kind of like any social meaning or whatever so because it was cut off so much from the rest of the country particularly down south liverpool just went ahead and did its own thing without anybody else kind of noticing wow you know so all these skiffle groups developed and then they eventually decided to get Electric guitars instead of cheap ones, and proper basses and drums, and um, what was happening to us with the records coming in from the states was happening to lots of other people. So they were hearing, you know, uh, Chuck Berry and all that stuff when the BBC wasn't playing it. For just one thing led to another, and all, and all of a sudden you've got these groups playing American R and B and rock and roll. In and, the, with a uh, Liverpool accent. <laughs> 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 the natural progression for American yeah. folk music. Yeah. <laughs>
0: So when was the first, what was the first band you played in? Do you remember that first experience? Like, did you actually go and study or, or did were you completely self-taught? Yeah, I was completely self-taught.
1: Yeah. So um, it was all by ear, but by that stage I was listening to, say, Dave Brubeck play Take Five, and I could take that down off the record and play that on the yeah, piano, right. You know? Yeah, That kind yeah. of things so I developed to a good stage. A, a pretty pretty good starting point to yeah. walk into a
0: room and say, what do you want to play? Doesn't <laughs> matter. What do you
1: mean? It's from the other <laughs> side of the world, it doesn't matter. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I developed my ears pretty well, and um, we actually moved from Everton now to a place called Oral Park, um, and I got to know some guys in the area. I was about 13, and they were putting a group together and they said, do you want to come and play in the groove? You know, which was on piano. Um, co- as a consequence of doing that, I started learning basically what you'd call the standard repertoire. You know, the Jerry Lee Lewis's, the Chuck Berries, um, Bill Haley, Louis Jordan and his timpani five. Mm. Uh, Booker T and the MGs, uh, all that kind of stuff. You know, yeah. the stuff
0: that we're all going back to still today. Yeah, yeah <laughs> trying to yeah. get our head in the game.
1: Yeah, and and doing that all by ear basically. We all were. Every every group, every member, played by ear.
0: And how did it how did it go from that to then getting the call from to to join Jerry and the Pacemakers? Do you remember? Was was you circulating in lots of different acts and just becoming a hired gun and a session player? Is, was that the progression?
1: I suppose so. I, I, I went through quite a few bands in Liverpool before I got there. During... I read somewhere, sorry to interrupt, I read somewhere
0: that between 1958 and 63, there was something like 500 different bands that would form and reform.
1: Oh, uh, try 1,000. How, yeah. how,
0: and so the, 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 the size of Liverpool was what? It wasn't that big. It was like 300 um,
1: square kilometres, wasn't it? Like It was about 800,000 people, I think. 800, wow. 800,000 or 900,000 people. Um, but that's a lot of bands, isn't it? That's a lot of bands. It exploded. Yeah, yeah, it really did explode. Yeah, and there were what started out as um, these little bands playing in. Uh, well, there was a limited number of clubs. I suppose there was the Cavern, the Iron Door, um, clubs in town for them to play. But all of a sudden, to accommodate these bands, there's an expansion of. Um, Halls, uh, pubs, all kinds of places all of a sudden sprang up that were putting on dances more or less every night of the week throughout Liverpool. So everybody was working, everybody was gigging, yeah. And everybody was bouncing off one another and learning from one another, you know. Yeah, and if you weren't playing, you'd go to listen to somebody else and you'd pick something up, oh, they're doing that you oh, know. We'll, we'll do that too.
0: A little sidestep, but do you find that that type of, that, that's something that I've heard from a lot of uh, people that have played with a lot of bands that have, uh, how would you say, a history of learning under the American philosophy mm. in terms of music which is um, sharing ideas and concepts kind of rather freely and like, no, no, don't... Don't do that. Why don't you think about it like this? Or what's that lick? Can you share that with me? You know, I know there's a lot of, you know, there's a story of Louis Armstrong, you know, having his handkerchief over his hand so no one can see his Mm. fingering and that sort of stuff. Mm. But I found generally there was a lot of mentorship. Did did you find that that that's what we're talking about? And was there a lot of that sort of the same way in Australia, do you think?
1: Yeah, I think there was... The mentorship in Liverpool seemed to work in a different way. Yeah. Um... Cause everyone was finding it can together can i swear on here of course you can all oh, right okay so like if we'll just bleep it uh, out later uh, <laughs> <laughs> the mentorship in liverpool would involve something like um you're in a band you go up to the one of the guys who are more experienced and you'd say how am i doing and they'd say bloody awful give it up and you'd say well fuck you <laughs> <laughs> and you'd go home and practice and get better and you get better than them you know <laughs> I think that's what's carried over to Australia I think that's the way
0: we work <laughs> as well
1: <laughs> so, so I, I think that was the kind of mentorship that was pretty hard it wasn't easy nobody was nobody was really forthcoming in praise in those days you really had to earn it you know yeah. It was the Mercy yeah. Beat
0: named after the Mercy Sound, was it?
1: Yeah. yeah it was right. the Mercy Sound. Yeah. And then Bill Harry, to complement this, formed a, a weekly newspaper called, uh, two separate words, Mersey Beat. Mersey. Like a policeman's beat. Yeah. was his Mersey Beat. And um, he would report on the goings on of oh, what was happening in Liverpool with all the groups and stuff like that. and yeah, There'd be, wow. be you know features and tittle-tattle and rumours and all, all kinds of things. And there's another
0: thing that I found, which was another... I think it was in 1972. I, I should have actually wrote this down, but I didn't. It was that there were, at the top of the charts, uh, in this particular time, it was five acts all from Liverpool. So one of them was a Lennon single. I think one of them was a McCartney single. One was um, Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Like, all these... Uh, I don't. I think a lot of people think about Germany first when they think about the Beatles, and then they sort of think a little bit about Liverpool, but it really is, there seems to be something really sp- unique and kind of uh, that circulated globally from Liverpool, you know, yeah. that sound, you know, the same way we think about uh, the, the South and Nashville mm. and the sounds of Memphis and, you know. Well,
1: looking at this list, uh, the Beatles would have been the most popular, but they wouldn't have been the best musical yeah. out of all those groups. The big three were considered, and the Remo Four were considered really musical. Uh, As were the Undertakers, yeah, King Size Taylor and the Dominoes. There was lots of really, really good musical groups there, but you know, they weren't the ones who were taken on by Brian Epstein and promoted, and had given the chance to kind of progress. I, I, during the Pacemakers had a couple of hits before yes. I joined. Yeah. In the meantime, I was still coming up through the ranks of the groups in Liverpool. Yeah. Till I got to the point where, um, when the Pacemakers needed a new piano player, I was the obvious choice.
0: Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I got to the point where you were essentially next in line. Yes. In the, the scene.
1: Yeah. Next in line. Yeah. 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 The Yongguan, next in line, joining the band, yeah.
0: And did you already know all, their, all their, the, the, the charts that had already been previously recorded, all their hits and all that? Had they been part of your catalogue at that
1: point? Uh, no, but I just knew them from here, from the records. So I could just start playing them straight away. Yeah, yeah ding 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 ding, 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 ding. I, yeah i could just start playing them straight away so there was no problem there i knew all the songs and what was it like
0: um, joining that act and, 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 and starting that what what was that like
1: it just felt like it it, it just felt like it was a normal progression yeah. That was that. Ever since I first started learning to play and coming up through the early groups in Liverpool, it just felt like a normal progression. That it felt right. It felt that that's the way it should be. That it got to that plateau. I didn't know. Of it. So it was
0: never like an overnight kind of jump to something. You go, wow! I'm really. I shouldn't be here playing to these no. crowds or this club. It was just like the next. The next thing yeah. so I felt
1: really. The very first thing I did was tour Australia. Yeah, that was exciting. That and the whole international thing you know and recording and the band was still popular and
0: yeah i, I, I to- never
1: at any stage felt like oh shit all of a sudden i'm a pop star yeah it was just like this natural musical progression yeah, and right. now i was in this group from liverpool that everybody knew you know yeah well wow. yeah okay some of the first recordings i did were actually for uh, the bbc which is one of the ones
0: that's was that is that one of the ones that's just been re-released now? That's
1: it's just been released. Yeah. And uh, some of the first recordings I did with the, for the BBC, where we used to um, used to go down to London and record live for BBC shows, whether it was Saturday Club or uh, John Peel or whatever, and we'd record, and they'd they'd go to air, and then that'd be it. Yeah. And um, it's strange because. 50 odd years later, they've gone into the BBC archives, dug up these Jerry and the Pacemakers recordings and have issued them on an album.
0: And they sound great. I was listening to them today.
1: Yeah? <laughs> yeah, I think
0: so. It was, it's then Lizzy, isn't it? That kicks off the... Or was it Good Gosh Diz- Miss Diz- Molly?
1: Dizzy Miss Lizzy, yeah. I remember if it yeah. was Molly or Lizzie. Yeah. <laughs> and I got to re-record um, You'll Never Walk Alone with them, yeah.
0: Was it a, a vastly different
1: arrangement? No, same arrangement. I think it's the one they actually play at Anfield uh, for the Liverpool games. So, is it was really a really nice surprise when all of a sudden this happens, this Jerry, after this new uh, record? It's, it's not a, it's not, um, it's not a reissue. It's just these things have never been released before. It's actually a first time release on an, on a Jerry and the Pacemakers album about fifty years later. But other than that, it was just like. Uh, any other recording situation, you'd go in, yeah. you know, set up, play, yeah. get it right, do it a few takes, get it right. It was n- normally all done live back then. There's only two or four. There's only four tracks.
0: Well, that's. I think the thing I was sort of leading to a little bit about the process is that it was vastly different. I think in a lot of ways today, although I think it seems more and more people are doing more and more live things, hmm. um, but. The, even the creation of the way it was pieced together was a bit more improvised in a sense, wasn't it? Or was it largely like orchestrated, you know, all the different pieces coming together? Or was it just, OK, we're going to do this one and the producer leads a little section of it and this is the string arrangement we're going to do and, and, and here we go, you know, let's just play the rhythm section. And
1: Yeah, it was just all in. Yeah. It was just all in. Um, first time recorded, it would have been vocals as well, so more or less a live situation. But later on vocals were overdu- would be overdubbed, yeah. but the music would all be played at the same time. And the only do- overdubs would be things like if strings were going to be added and something like that, but that usually meant somebody just standing in the studio. Uh, leaning over the piano with a, some manuscript and a pencil, writing some stuff out. Oh, can you call the string guys? tell the string guys to be here about four o'clock? Yeah, okay. And they'd all come in saying, yeah, we, do, we can do this. Okay. It'd all be recorded by 4.30. By five o'clock, it would have been placed into the track and they'd be mixing it and... Yeah, <laughs> 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 you'd have finished the record by about past five, six o'clock that day. And then everybody would knock off. Because you worked strict times in studios those days, especially if it was uh, the BBC or Abbey Road or anything like that, and nobody was allowed to touch any equipment other than the people in the white coats. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> they were the technicians. and <laughs> they, they were a medical everything. team, apparently. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> they, they moved everything around, you know? <laughs> it has changed tremendously. With the advent of digital technology, it's changed completely. And you talked about the um, that the You'll Never Walk
0: Alone that you played on is the, the one that you believe they're playing. Yeah, um, Anfield. Anfield. That surprised me that that song was so meant so much to, to 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 the fans of football, like I understand why, but when I first uh, heard the, the singing along, it seemed to be an unlikely choice of a song for a football team to be singing uh, you know this musical theater number and yeah. and, and my, my growing mm-hmm. up and seeing the two separations of of, of the 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 footy fan and then the, you know, the musical theatre
1: fan. I think, I think a lot of it stems from what I was talking about earlier, about that uh, camaraderie and helping each other along in Liverpool, that attitude that prevails, especially in really poor times, you know? Yeah. And I think the fans just connected to it, this idea of you, you, you will never walk alone. I'll always there, be there with you, you know? Because when that was first released as a record... I mean, I'm talking apart from the musical, I'm talking apart from Carousel. When the, when the crowd were there and they started uh, waiting for the teams to come on the pitch, they would always play the current hits over the tanhoy system, you know? Over the speaker system at the ground.
0: So like background music?
1: Yeah, yeah. And they started when, so when You'll Never Walk Alone came out, they started playing that. And then they noticed that the fans were all singing along with it more than they would sing along with anything else. So this got into a habit and they played it every week and the crowd got louder and louder singing it, you know, and it just all of a sudden became the anthem of uh, Liverpool Football Club. What royalties are they paying off that? <laughs> I don't know. I what, don't well, they're going to Richard <laughs> Rodgers and Oscar <laughs> yeah, Hammerstein, yeah, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. Oh, yeah, forgot about that. But so much so, over the main gate into the Anfield football ground out at Liverpool, is written, you'll never walk alone, in scroll. It's scrolled across the gate. It, yeah. It's just part of it. Yeah.
0: So you stay with Jerry and, and the Pacemakers for five or six years and you travel all around the world.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, do you have a favorite, uh, some favourite memories or stories from that time?
1: Not that I could tell you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so obviously you're referring to playing solitaire. <laughs> yeah. You know, after no, going to bed at 6pm. No, well, there, is there a show you remember the, the, that, that sticks out of mind? The,
1: the, uh, the main thing that sticks in my mind is the eye-opening experience of getting to see so many places for the first time around the world. Because as this poor kid in Liverpool, my biggest dream was getting down to the end of the street or down into the city centre. That would have been the biggest adventure, you know? And to all of a sudden being able to go to all these places around the world and see them. And I wouldn't have been able to do that without the music or the group. I just wouldn't have been able to do it, you know. It just never would have happened. Mm. So it opened up a lot to me. I made a lot of friends. Yeah, we did um, get to connect with a lot of other musicians and concerts, and it was great going to see so many other people or even work with them, like, you know, groups of the time, like Three Dog Night or other groups from England, Hermits Hermits. And then all of a sudden, you'd be doing some in, in some completely other parts of the world and you'd meet up with them there too yeah you'd be in san francisco and go, all right there jimmy how you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing here oh you know you know let's go for a point yeah <laughs> but uh i never i was never one for really getting it I, I i would never do anything that i couldn't put in a book really i mean i wasn't a i was never i got yeah i used to get pissed a lot but oh, sure. I, I, I didn't mean... i didn't you know, I wasn't outrageous or anything like that, you know, jumping throwing tellies out of hotel windows and stuff like that. Yeah, well, I didn't have tellies. No. Then. No, just, I'm joking. Just generally, just generally having a good time. And yeah. it was always music. Wherever I went, I, I always tried to catch up on music that wasn't part of my scene. So if we were in America, I'd go and see as much jazz as I could and yeah. stuff like that, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's been uh, a constant in your life, really, hasn't it? it jazz has, music. Yeah. And
1: it's always been there. It's always been there. Okay, so you come to Australia. What brought that on? Why did you... Well, I toured out here, obviously, and um, the land of the big blue sky, (laughs) never-ending blue sky and (laughs) sun and beaches and great food and beautiful women and stuff like that. Yeah. And we went back to England after that tour. It was around about this time I was thinking, you know, I needed a change. I probably just decided one day that I was probably going to just pack up and give Australia a go. I'd just been divorced from my first wife. That would that would help
0: wanting to make a big change, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A it new did. location, a new yeah, start.
1: Yeah, I I was just probably a bit as far as ma- being a husband was concerned, I was probably a bit too naive. At fair, I got married when I was nineteen, so I was pretty young, and I was still growing. Yeah, you know. And rock and
0: roll and married at 19 is often a, a, a challenging road yeah. to walk side by side. Yeah, we, yeah. we know that from yeah. lots of
1: different... And also, at that time in England, the, it was pretty depressing that the, everybody was on strike. They were doing a three-day working week. Everybody was miserable and complaining. The weather was terrible. It was just, I was going, oh, God... Why Get me out of here. Why don't I just give Australia a try? I mean, I'd, there was nothing saying I had to stay here. I could come out for six months, give it a try, and if it wasn't working out, I, I could go back, you know? Yeah. I was very fortunate that that was the time that you could buy a one-way ticket on a Qantas plane, fly out here, which is what I did. I landed at Melbourne Airport, Tall Marine, got off the plane, went through customs, Guy looked at my passport and he said, "Good day, sir. How long do you plan on staying?" <laughs> and I said, "Quite possibly for good." And he said, "Fine." <laughs> and he stamped my passports with a resident visa, and in I walked. And it was as easy as that. Customs were far more relaxed in those days, <laughs> and it was as easy as that. Just but as were you easy carrying any
0: batteries? <laughs> <laughs> Probably yeah.
1: not. It was as easy as that. I just walked into the country. Yeah. And I'd already made, uh, established some contacts here uh, from the tours out here. Yeah. Notably, some people who were quite heavily involved in the Australian music industry and the pop industry in particular. Yeah. And as soon as they knew that I was back in Melbourne and I'd come to stay there, there were just offers of work from everywhere. Yeah.
0: One story that I read about um, online was you were watching the TV and you saw the show New Faces. Yeah. Which was like the 1970s equivalent of Australian Idol. Yes. Today. And so uh, you went on that. Now, was it just you? Was it with a band?
1: No, it was with my gu- Australian girlfriend. And you... I, by this time, I'd acquired an Australian, a beautiful blonde Australian girlfriend. And she, who also happened to be a really good singer. And so you saw this show and then you both. And, and I said to her. Why don't we go on that? Because, you know, one a, a thing I teach my students at uni is the fact, they say, how'd you get work? And I said, well, you've got to get noticed. You've got to get people to yeah. notice you, you know? Yeah. yeah. So, you so know you're it. ahead of the time. Yeah. Do whatever you can. To get people to take notice of you, and so I, I said, to, I said to Julie, "Let's go on that." Because, but she was Australian from Melbourne. And she's going, no, no, yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> you know, Couldn't possibly. Yeah, but but I kind of I was new to the place, and i was thinking, oh wow, you know that that that's, that's a way to kind of get known. So uh, so we eventually did, and we eventually won through, and we won the grand final. Yeah, and yeah.
0: so some of the, the the judges were the seekers.
1: The Affle Guy from the Seekers, yeah.
0: And were the strangers on that panel as well or did you just meet them through that? I just met them. Through that, yeah. Yeah. So you got a recording recording uh, contract. What amazes me about this story too is that you've come from England to Australia and like to me the 1970s, I don't know a lot about Australian musical history but at the time this was like... Right, I guess, before another, a wider nucleus of Australian acts became known again. It's right at that, inse- like, you're there again around
1: it, this time. It's right there, right at that time. It's right at the time of Eagle Rock and Russell Morris and... What oh, are some? I, I read about
0: some of the other supports that you had. Now, this is with another group that you joined, which was Daniel. Yes. And so uh, you guys, I believe you went on... Tour, you guys were backed by Yamaha and then you did a record with Mushroom. Yes. And then uh you went on and you s- supported the Skyhooks, um Jojo and the Falcons. No. Did you support or they supported you?
1: We were all equal billing.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah. Cause my favorite was the story about you go to Port Ferry south of Melbourne and you're on the bill with it was a
1: local band, wasn't it? Do you remember this story? Oh, no, it was a it was a it was a festival. Yeah, down, music festival down there, Port Ferry. And the band I was with at the time were called Panther, which was kind of Australia's, was Australia's version of Santana. Yeah, right. It was right. kind of a percussive rock, yeah? Yep. And we were quite high up on the bill because we had an album out. Yeah. Yep. Yeah? And before us, the support band for us on that particular afternoon when we were on was this... Upstart bunch of kids from Sydney called ACDC. Never heard of them.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Fantastic support acts. Were they any good back then? Yeah, they were
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, they go on, we're not going on. This guy's wearing a tie and no yeah. shirt. Yeah. <laughs> and another one was you did a residency in Adelaide. Adelaide, yeah, at the Continental Hotel. And, and you were supported happened. by another act that was just never, they'd made nothing of never their heard career. Of them in
1: my life, and yeah. I thought they were a scruffy bunch of, yeah. Well, they probably were. <laughs> And they were called Cold Chisel, yeah. Cold Chisel? Yeah. I find that just. Barnesy, Jimmy Barnes.
0: We haven't even talked about then your your career as a composer, writing many recordings for several TV shows, jingles, documentary films, and composing the official Australian Olympic theme song for the Sydney two thousand Olympic Games. Hmm. Tell us about that. That must have been uh, the Olympic Games one. Huh? Yeah, writing that that must have been really. How was that?
1: Well, um, I I I had written a lot a lot of stuff, and there was um. A guy named Shane Monopoly, who was hoping that he was actually going to get into the Australian team yeah, as a kayaker. And he was, tra- was muscly, you know, and he yeah. trained really hard for us and he was doing really well. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, in the long run, he didn't make the team. But he was also um, one of these guys who liked to try his hand at everything. He was, you know, very much entrepreneurial. He's got a very successful photography business.
0: Yeah.
1: And he thought, well, they've called for songs for the um, Sydney Olympics, and probably every man and his dog would have been putting in songs. They must have got thousands. Yeah. But he, he knew he couldn't do it on his own, and, and he'd heard about me, yeah. and my background, yeah. and Jerry and the Pacemakers, and writing songs, and I'd done a few TV things. For him. Yeah. And so he approached me and got me on board, and that we'd write it together. And uh, he came up with this bunch of lyrics and he said, could you put some music to this? And I said, yes, I could, and I sat down and I think it took me about half an hour and I had the music for it. And then what I actually did is he bought all the stuff, he set up a studio in his home. Wow! We got in all these professional people to perform this song we'd written. And then we sent it off to the uh, Sydney Organising Committee, yeah. And it, so it obviously won, is that correct? Or was it one of the... It got accepted, what, what they were looking for, they were looking for songs that would go on the official album. Ah, so were songs pro- about... Yeah, it, songs of inspiration. We won a lot of gold from memory, yeah. so I think it worked. Yeah, <laughs> so um, th- we're basically initially they were looking for about 14 or 15 songs that would go on this album yep. however many and then Laos fortunately was one of those there was a bit of other political brokering that goes on in between of course be too boring to get into but anyway if it eventually succeeded in being accepted for this album and then what they decided to do they decided to play all the tracks on the album to the Australian team and and Asked them all which one they found the most inspirational. And it was ours. Awesome. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, so it became the official song. Yeah, yeah.
0: It became the that's right the theme song for, yeah. for them.
1: What, what how do you
0: how do you think about composing then? How do you approach composing something? I guess how do you how do you think about going into that?
1: Uh, sometimes it might be a phrase that sparks off an idea for a set of lyrics, or I could be just sitting with a guitar or uh, piano um, playing a particular set of chords will come you know yeah and start building from there so sometimes the words come first sometimes the music comes first sometimes it's a bit of both sometimes it comes easy sometimes it's really hard and you have to you know drag it out like constipation it's (laughs) it's uh, (laughs) so and I think I write better when I'm under pressure. So if there's an actual a reason to write or a deadline to write, I will do it. I'll come up with the goods. Yeah, I know I will. I'm confident that I will. If I don't have any reason to write, then it's more laborious. Yep.
0: Yeah, yeah. Something about the stakes, I guess, makes probably the yeah, it brings out the best in people, doesn't it? There's a, yeah. there's a quote here which I found of you. You said, if so, if someone held a gun to your head and you had to pick only one music to play, it would be improvised. Jazz music. Do you remember this improvised I don't, jazz? I, I don't you don't know. remember, but this. But you said this. I'm not making right. this up. No, no, it but, fine. it's fun. And it's because imagine. it's because you felt most at home because it was a combination of all the music you have ever played that had come to an, come to a head, and that when you played this music, that that there would be lots of all the things that you've ever played. So there'd be some bendy notes like a blues player. There'd be the odd country lick. Yeah. And to me, I find it interesting too that then it's like you're composing naturally on the spot without barrier and there's no quicker deadline than make up something right now
1: that's right yeah it's which kind me. of brings the best yeah. out of someone doesn't it yeah do it you? does I think so too yeah uh, and I think you have to develop a level of confidence in you in in yourself to be able to kind of feel comfortable doing that but I do think you get to the point where and I had I, I advocated to the students at uni too that said, let all your music be who you are. You know, you, you, you are the sum of all the music you listen to, not just one form of music. So let it come out in your playing, you know?
0: Are there parameters in which you use when you're thinking about improvisation? Does it depend, depend on what you're playing? Is there a style, like, do you have kind of, like, um, markers inside yourself where you go, when I'm playing this, I'm going to stick to this kind of thing? And
1: No, I don't, know. No, it's
0: just open, kind it's of, just,
1: open the floodgates and let's make some music. It's open slather, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and whatever comes out, comes out. It's going to be improvised, It's going, which means... Yeah, we're gonna, talking about improvised it, jazz it, right it, now. It, so I'm going to, I'm sure that, that, sure that there is a jazz language, you know, which involves chromaticism and... Um, specific movements within a chord structure but I will allow whatever else is going to come out w- within w- within that, you know? Yep. So it, yes, I could be doing some kind of bebop phrase but a, a country lick might come out there or a, a rock and roll lick or something or a bit of funk or something like that will come out, yeah. Because in, in a way, I, I think about this quite a lot, that we are myself
0: more than you because through your career and through all the, the the different acts that you've played with and being a part of you know that Liverpool scene and, and and the progression of that is that anytime I've come to these songs, I'm imitating a copy of a copy. You know, I'm imitating mm. these people. So I am a copy of a copy. And I guess too the Liverpool scene was essentially also that in which it was listening to American music, but it actually became something. It became very unique, unique sound. Yeah. And it, then the British Invasion went back and it actually then inspired a whole other movement over there. That's right. So that is a very authentic sound. But I know for myself, if I sit down and
1: I play a blues, it's, it's... It's going to be a bit derivative. It is, isn't and I it? Think, and I think... Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting and conversation. I think, and I think that's okay. Yeah, you right. Know? I, I, because I think there's only, only, there's only so many combination of notes and words and stuff like that that people can possibly come up with, you know? Yeah. So I think no matter what you do, there's always going to be derivation there. Um, I, I, I think it's what, how much of your own personality that you put into it that makes it different, you know? So if, you, if you're a particularly bleak person, your music will sound that way. And if you've got a, a crazy sense of humour, it'll, <laughs> it'll sound that way too, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I don't think it's just the notes, I think it's how much of you that you put into it too.
0: Yeah. so what I take from what you just said was that it's it's not necessarily about trying to recreate the wheel, but it's about putting yourself in that into the music and then that will actually speak. Yeah. That that the genre is actually just the 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 palette and yes. the colours of what you put on yeah. on top of that with your personality. Yes. It's a really lovely way of looking at it because it actually frees you up to not try and actually be authentic. That's right. Because whenever we're trying to be authentic, we're trying to actually be someone else through us. That's right. I think that's a really freeing way to look at it. It's, I yeah. think it's really great to hear that, actually.
1: I think we do go st- through stages in music where we, um, we try to emulate our heroes or try and be them to some degree. But I think this is a good thing because if you're, say you're, say you're a, a singer, well... Which you are <laughs> as you are. <laughs> no. Well, let's say hypothetically, Same we state, were good but, ones. Uh, <laughs> uh, hypothetically, a singer goes on stage, and all of us, and all of a sudden, instead of being involved in the songs, starts so thinking, Oh, there's a lot of people in here. Oh, no, there's people from work over there that I know. Oh, how are they going to like me? Uh, is, is the band going to play right? our so, eyes? Am I singing in tune? Or, and all these things again. Why are going. I'm not wearing any pants. Yeah, well, I forgot <laughs> my knickers. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas, if that person could go on stage and actually think that they were Barbara Streisand, and by concentrating on that, all this other stuff disappears. Hmm. So it shows them that there's a way to kind of actually combat. All, all the thoughtiness and the, and the insecurity and the nerves about going on stage.
0: Yeah, it takes you out of yourself. Yeah. Helps yeah. helps assist yeah. you to get out
1: of yourself. That's right, yeah. Yeah. So I think in a, as a stepping stone, that's a really good thing. And then at some stage, that needs to be dropped uh, because your own confidence level has come up to meet that and then you just, Yeah.
0: But so, uh, that's re- a really wonderful way of, of putting it. I'm thinking about my own progression thus far and I'm thinking, that's right, I was imitating that person there or that person there, and at some point you have to put that down and go, well, this is who I am and I yes. can do that without trying to be them. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And that there's nothing actually wrong with that. <laughs> no, there isn't. But that's a very natural
1: progression. I think it is a very natural thing to happen, yeah,
0: yeah. And that sounds like
1: the life of a journeyman.
0: <laughs> to well, be honest. well, it is. Yeah, picking up another disguise and putting it down and becoming more yeah. who they are.
1: No, no matter what I'd done musically in my life, uh, getting to the point in my life where that, where I had the realization, that I could get up on stage and have fun, and not really care. What was when I realized that I was just free to do. To be yourself. To be myself. Yeah, yeah, and that's felt like. The journeyman that you're talking about, because if I, it's probably not the goal that I realised I was aiming for when I was young, that there was this, this some kind of realisation about this. Mm. But when it happened, it definitely felt like a goal in life had been reached.
0: A, a, another type of success, if you will. Yeah,
1: without actually realising I was aiming for that. Yeah, yeah. I think that
0: seemed, that would be a perfect place to leave today's conversation, Jose. I think that's wonderful. Thank you so much for speaking with us today.
1: Oh, it was my pleasure. I really enjoyed it, actually. I even had a little cry. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Brad. You're welcome.
0: This has been Ramble City, a podcast of conversations with interesting people musing on art, life and their careers. Created and produced by Old Fashioned Media. To hear more and discover additional material from today's episode, visit OFM.com.